Hi, I'm Scott Lacey, and this is Talking Documentary. The girls were feisty and opinionated, strong and self-possessed. They were much younger than the other students, but they deferred to no one. They sought only to be themselves and dressed accordingly. The older kids saw them differently. To them, the girls were impertinent, disrespectful, disheveled, dirty even. And with that, a label was born. These young girls, barely through the gates of adolescence, became known on campus as the Dirty Girls. This was in 1996 in Santa Monica, California. Michael Lucid was a senior at that school. He noticed the girls and decided they weren't dirty at all. Lucid grabbed a high-aid camcorder and began filming the girls for a school documentary project. He knew there was something special about them. What Lucid couldn't know is that he was creating a time capsule of sorts, a rare glimpse into 90s culture that decades later would tantalize young viewers who weren't even alive when it was recorded. Lucid's documentary video, Dirty Girls, was uploaded to YouTube in 2013 and has attracted over a million views in the years since. And it continues to deliver a taste of 90s culture to hundreds of new viewers every single day. Lucid joins me today from his home in Southern California. Well, Michael, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a real pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for uh, talking to me about Dirty Girls. So before we get into the film itself, let's set the scene. The school where all this happened is not an ordinary school. Tell me a little bit about Crossroads. Uh, yes, uh, Crossroads, it's a, um, it's a private school in, uh, in West L.A. in Santa Monica. It's known for having a more progressive, liberal, nurturing environment. You know, we have yoga as a PE option. There's a very uh, heavy emphasis on the arts. So it's this highfalutin place uh, that started as a little hippie school in the in the 70s in this industrial alley in this kind of warehouse district in Santa Monica. And then over the years, as you know, everything got gentrified and the school got fancier, it stayed in the alley. It's to this day, it's still in that alley. The, the students were encouraged you know, to express ourselves freely and and so there was a lot of mid nineties when I was in high school, a lot of, you know, the kind of grunge fashions and it was very of that time and, and everyone liked to dress and express themselves to the, to the full extent. It seems based on my math, if I'm correct, you would have been going there at the same time as people like Kate Hudson, Jason Ritter, Zoe Deschanel. Is that, is that right? Uh, yes, it, it's true. It's true. And that's the other thing about uh, Crossroads. It's known as a, as sort of a, Hollywood hub. And so a lot of people in the entertainment industry uh, send their kids there. And there's a lot of actors, entertainment kids who are also going to school there. So a lot of my peers and, and the people older than me and younger than me, you know, either their parents were very involved in the industry or they were or they would do that later in life. So when did you first notice the Dirty Girls and what was your initial impression? I was a senior in high school when I first noticed the Dirty Girls they were mostly in seventh grade. They were just, you know, 12, 13 years old, but they were notorious on campus. They quickly made a reputation for themselves and and they were kind of the talk of the campus. Everyone was gossiping about them because it was so fascinating that these girls so young were were so bold and rebellious and out there with their behavior and their fashion choices uh, at school. Kind of the weird irony, and I think it kind of comes through in Dirty Girls, is that Crossroads was a place that did 
kind of foster a lot of free expression and a lot of, you know, uh, alternative fashions. And so it was kind of ironic that kids had such a problem with these younger girls really taking on this riot girl grunge punk aesthetic. But people did. They were literally they were outraged about these young girls, you know, and these girls were really kind of fierce and fabulous. That was the other thing. They were just so precocious, like these young prodigies who were seemed to just sort of suddenly emerge self-made and they'd already made their own zine that was filled with their artwork and poetry and collages. They were doing punk shows on campus. They were staging almost little happenings, you know, where they'd run through the campus screaming with lipstick all over their faces. You know, they were generating this whole exciting moment that uh, I was really enamored with. For those who don't know, tell us a little bit about the history of the Riot Girl movement. My understanding of Riot Girls is, you know, it started in the early 90s and there were some really seminal Riot Girl bands like Bikini Kill. And it, it's it's basically sort of a, a post-punk grunge feminist movement that really took off in the early mid-90s. It was sort of uh, built around grunge or, or, or rock shows with these bands and then also zines. Homemade zines was a really big part of that movement. Uh, you know, young women and younger girls going to, you know, the copy place and photocopying their own little homemade zines filled with manifestos and poems. Collage art was a big part of it. And just kind of expressing their anger and rebellion at, at this sort of patriarchal system that they were encountering and experiencing. Can you talk about each girl individually that was part of the Dirty Girls? I think there were about five of them. The, the two main Dirty Girls were Amber and Harper, and they were the co-founders, co-originators of the Dirty Girls. And Amber and Harper are both such charismatic people. I mean, even at 12 and 13, Harper was 13, Amber was 12. They were already so, at that age, self-realized and strong and tough and funny. That's the other thing. Very funny, really sharp, biting senses of humor, very witty and precocious, you know, wise beyond their years. And, uh, and you know, I would say of the two of them, Harper was the more even-keeled sister. She was, you know, she was a year older. She was maybe the more mature, poised sister. And Amber was more uh, kind of the even more rebellious, tough, punk rock, kind of Kurt Cobain-esque figure at school. Uh, and Lauren White does appear in the film with Amber. And, and often in the footage, you, you see Amber next to Lauren, who's, who's a blonde girl. And then the other member of the Dirty Girls was Anna, who in the film talks about having the T-shirt that, that uh, was given to her by her housekeeper. And she moved to Australia later uh, after high school and opened her own Mexican restaurant. And it's just awesome and badass in Australia now. So I read in, in an interview that you had a, an ability to kind of move fluidly between groups at Crossroads. In watching the film, it, I, I get the sense that without that trust between these different groups, that you would not have gotten the raw, honest material you did. Yeah, yeah. I think that's who I was as a teenager uh, and a high school student is I was one of those kids who uh, I was very sociable. I enjoyed talking to people and I, I didn't really fit in one group. I just sort of, you know, I was one of those social butterflies and was friendly with everybody. 
And people knew that about me, uh, that I just was just this friendly, approachable person. And so I think that also enabled me to uh, feel comfortable approaching the Dirty Girls and made them comfortable talking to me. Everyone is so forthcoming with me and with the video camera, and they just are very candid and don't hold back. And I think a big part of, of that was they felt comfortable talking to me. There are a number of elements that I think really make this film kind of pop. One is that alley, which is kind of a unique setting for a school. Certainly the the standard deaf video. It's kind of grungy, old school. And then it's that raw connection you had with the students. They just said whatever was on their mind. As you were conducting the, these interviews, did you realize that you were onto something that had some legs? I did. Two of the main originators of this whole movement, uh, the sisters, Amber and Harper. When I talked to Amber and Harper and got the real story from them, why they started this dirty girl movement at Crossroads, what it meant to them and what was really going on for them and really hit a nerve and, and really got into some very real serious things in their lives that I, that's when it clicked for me fully. Uh, I think up to that point, I was fascinated by the whole thing. Um, but I didn't realize or anticipate that it went deeper for them. This video has on YouTube, I believe 1.2 million views or something like that. What do you think explains kind of the viral sort of response that you've gotten by releasing this film on YouTube? Why did it connect with people? First, I'll say just on a superficial level, I think people were fascinated because grunge was like I was saying, grunge was back in. It was it was exciting. People were fascinated by the 90s. And so there was that. And then also, this was just a couple of years before Me Too movement really entered the public consciousness when it really like in the pop culture became this thing that everyone knew about. Um, so there was something brewing, I think, already in the early aughts and, and in the teens. Women were finding a voice online. Younger women were interested in feminist movements and feeling more empowered and expressing themselves and speaking out against the oppressive, exploitative behavior from men and other women in this patriarchal world we live in. I think that's why the Dirty Girls' message of freedom of expression and speaking out, not conforming, it's so universal and it's so relevant now, especially as women more and more are speaking out and finding a voice online to speak out. You mentioned that this film has had many lives. And when you think about the YouTube algorithm, it it acts in strange ways. It's possible this film will have many more lives. Are you ready for uh, a third and fourth chapter where you're talking about this film in 2030 and 2040? Like, have you thought about that? I love that. I love that idea of the film continuing to have a new life and be rediscovered by people. Um, even in the short time since it's been online, since uh, 2013, it's already had a few rediscoveries and, and a few new cycles of people finding it and it having a new uh, moment. And, and it, it's interesting, you know, it, it'll pop up somewhere or someone will curate it or screen it and it'll have like a new life again and a new flood of people will find it for the first time. And it, that is so gratifying for me. It's, it's moving, it's exciting, it's thrilling. I, I think because the message is so universal, about people just expressing themselves, their true, you know, authentic selves and not conforming to oppressive norms. I think that will always be 
universal. So the film will always connect with people. And at the same time, as more and more time goes by and the 90s are further and further away in the past, it's also this time capsule, which will only, I think, increase in fascination because it, you know, it's just this funny, just the uniqueness that it was filmed by a, a teen. So I had so much access to other teens and there's that authenticity. So tell me about the uh, relationship with these girls over the last 25 years. Are you guys kind of uh, connected over time now? And how often do you speak? I do reconnect with the Dirty Girls um, time and again. And we have a really lovely friendship now, which I'm so happy for. Um, soon after I finished the, the, the version in 2000 and it screened in Outfest, the Dirty Girls came to that screening, or at least Harper and Amber did, and maybe a few of the other Dirty Girls I filmed some follow-up footage with them then in 2000. I never ended up using that footage. I still have it. It's still in a box. But then when it blew up online and had this whole viral moment in 2013, we really reconnected. And we, uh, we at that time, I then did film some more extensive follow-up interviews with them that I did go on and edit. And now we're online on YouTube. Um, I think there's maybe four video clips of new footage, follow-up interviews with the Dirty Girls, as well as a few um, outtakes from the raw footage that I thought were really good. It was really wonderful to reconnect with them and get to really sit with them and hear from them in 2013 who they were as you know adult women, who they were in their lives. And it was so fascinating to hear their stories. And they had gone on to live very adventurous, exciting lives full of success and travel and artistic expression. Um, Harper's now, she's a photographer and an artist. Amber's a writer and Amber also um, is a producer and entrepreneur. She's a businesswoman. They're just badass women. They're just really cool, strong, powerful, adventurous women who still embody that dirty girl spirit now. It does strike me that this is so ripe for a sequel where we get to like really dig into their lives today. Is there any chance that you might uh, re revisit the well? You know, there is a chance that I'll revisit the well and follow up again. I mean, first of all, it could be sort of like uh, the seven up films, you know, where the filmmaker went back and, and interviewed the doc subjects every seven years. First of all, I think that will absolutely happen, that we will sit down again and do updates. I feel it will happen that we'll sit down again and get a new update or maybe also see what the teen dirty girls of today or the future are, are doing and even get a multi-generational story. So as far as I can tell, and this is not at all uncommon in the documentary field, this is your one and only attempt at a documentary. Did you ever want to come back and do a second or did life kind of get in the way? It's funny how life did take me away from documentary filmmaking. And there was a time in college when I, I thought that, I wanted to be a documentary filmmaker. I started working at the NYU campus TV while there with my best friends, a really small group of my best friends. We just took it upon ourselves. No one wanted us to or asked us to, but we just created our own sketch comedy show and started airing them on campus on our, just our campus TV station. And then eventually it just, the sketches took over the whole show and it became just my sketch show with maybe like one or two videos. Then after college I graduated it became a public access show in the early aughts uh, called Pretty Things and so my show Pretty Things that became my passion and that's when I moved away from documentary filmmaking. 
when you look back, what have you learned about this dirty girl's story and how it started as this little, you know, a lark 25 years ago and has had all these lives and has woven itself into your life? What have you learned from the whole experience over those 25 years? On a creative level, I'll say that in developing my voice as a storyteller, it was one of the first opportunities for me to blend comedy and more serious resonant themes. And that's something that's continued in my written work. And that's something that is what I love to watch. And it's what I enjoy as a viewer and what I enjoy writing as a storyteller is stories that are comedic and have humor, but, but are talking about something bigger and more serious and more resonant. And uh, hopefully that will move people. Uh, so on a creative level, that's something I've taken away from the Dirty Girls experience. One thing I will always admire about the Dirty Girls that I admired about them then and took with me through the rest of my life, their freedom and their wild spirit and their uh, joyful self-expression and their strength. And that's something that, you know, it left such an indelible mark on me. And I think moved me to express myself and you know i it was a few years later i was making my in fact you know perfectly the right around when i edited this version of dirty girls i started my comedy show at nyu and started putting on wigs and ex feeling more comfortable in my own skin expressing myself as as you know in drag and and just playing outlandish characters and being ridiculous and and embracing that and not feeling self-conscious or ashamed or embarrassed. So I think the dirty girls themselves have taught me to live life freely, openly, and joyfully, and always express myself uh, authentically to the fullest. Yeah. And I think along the way, you captured something so of its time. I was thinking about the movie Reality Bites and how it's kind of the, the feature film equivalent of kind of explaining the 90s. And yet Dirty Girls, I think, does it so much better. It's, it's just an extraordinary piece of, of history. But Michael, thank you so much for the time. This was fascinating. Congratulations. And thank you for coming. Thank you so much. I so appreciate it. And uh, it, it's, it's been so lovely to talk with you. Thanks again to Michael Lucid. His film, Dirty Girls, can be seen on YouTube. Just search for Dirty Girls. To be safe, you might want to add Michael Lucid to your search terms. Otherwise, I can't be responsible for what comes up. Thanks and see you next time.